This is On Grief, a podcast about death. Episode 2, Mortician. This episode contains frank discussion of death, suicide, decomposition, and burial rituals. If that's not something that you want to listen to, I suggest you skip this episode. Every society on earth throughout history has required people to remove, process, and bury or treat bodies. At some point in everyone's life, they'll have to have a discussion with a mortician, yet hardly any of us want to have a discussion with a mortician. Add to that that the depiction of morticians in movies and television is often one of a weird creep who maybe gets a little too close with the bodies, and you're talking about an entire group of people whose jobs are inaccessible despite the important role that they play in society. I decided I wanted to know more about what a mortician and a funeral director does so I asked Aaron Badishbaugh to come on the show and explain what their job is. Welcome, Aaron. Aaron, usually when you're a child and people ask you what you want to be f- when you grow up, most people say doctor, nurse, astronaut, fireman. Not a lot of kids are saying mortician. So how did you come across this as a career? I was interested in death when I was a kiddo. I was kind of a little Wednesday Adams. Um, I, my, my dad is a hunter and fisherman. So I was around a lot of uh, dead animals. And, um, and as I got older, I gravitated, I never, I never went to, um, I, I never got a bachelor's degree. I was no good for university. And I, I gravitated towards admin jobs, secretary, receptionist. And when I was about 27 years old, I sat down with my mom and my mom told me, Aaron, it's kind of time to fish or cut bait. And she really wanted me to find a career and something that I could stick with. Because we were never a very open family about death, I had never really told her that I wanted to be a funeral director. But that was when I told her, I was like, I'd love to be a mortician. I want to go to mortuary school and I want to become a mortician. And it was a surprise to her. And Maybe not entirely an unwelcome one, but not an entirely welcome one either. <laughs> she she was hoping, you know, in the course of that conversation, we talked about me becoming like a cheesemonger or like a specialty chef or something. And instead, I was like, no, I really want to get up in those guts of the of the deceased. So she was she was very supportive in the end. But my my dad was crazy about it. My dad is a real he has morbid fascinations and he was like, great, you're going to have amazing stories to tell me. <laughs> he, was, he was psyched. What kind of formal education do you have to do to become a mortician? It varies from state to state. I went to school down in Texas because that's where I was living at the time. I was living in Austin and there was a mortuary science program at San Antonio College. Since it was a mortuary program at a community college, instead of a dedicated mortuary school like they have in in Dallas or Houston that are that are run by embalming fluid companies like Dodge or Pierce since it was part of a a larger curriculum I feel like I got a more well-rounded education I went uh, to mortuary school there for two years and got my associate's degree it's an associate's in science in mortuary sciences and um, that's the kind of schooling that you need in Texas in Oklahoma you need a four-year bachelor degree So it really does vary from state to state on what you need. In fact, most statutes, when it comes to any kind of mortuary production, um, it varies from state to state. There's there are very few federal regulations for it. What kind of courses did you have to study? There were two different programs in it. One was a, a one year funeral director certificate. And in that program, you studied accounting, you studied merchandising. And, uh, and just some very basic anatomy kind of things, things that you would only need if you would be meeting with families or running, running a funeral 
home from an administrative side of things. What I went for was for the degree. And um, so as a result, we took a very intensive uh, cadaver anatomy class. We took restorative art, which is where you learn how to do cosmetics on people who have been in motorcycle accidents and things like that, uh, where you learn how to fill in wounds and, and cover up hair loss, singeing, that kind of thing. We had to do what were called internships, which were rotations at different funeral homes and embalming services, trade embalming services, where we would go and basically work there for a week at a time. It was, it was highly intensive. We took two separate embalming classes. And in addition to our accounting, mortuary accounting and our mortuary merchandising classes, things like that, we also had to take English composition and speech classes and, and math and ordinary core curriculum classes. So it was, it was a, a very comprehensive education. What were your classmates like? It was, it was largely women. Um, I think that my graduating class was 80% women and very upbeat people, mostly, if you can believe it. Um, very, very friendly, very comfortable interacting with the public. Most people that, that I was in class with we followed the same trajectory. We were we were real sort of brothers in arms, all of us, because we were undergoing the same the same sort of trials in school, and um, and so as we got to know each other, we we all found that we were following the same trajectory. Where we started out in our in our very initial classes, just wanting to be embalmers, just wanting to work in the back room not interact with anybody, um, really just stick with the deceased because the dead don't talk back, they don't hassle you, and, uh, and they don't make any sort of social demands of you. And as we went along and we gained confidence, we all found ourselves wanting to be funeral directors. Where we would where we would do everything from making the initial removal at the the home or the hospital or the hospice facility, go and embalm them. We were comfortable with that, and then meet with their family, and uh, and sort of absorb their grief and make their arrangements with them. the The program weeds out the goths fairly quickly. In your first six weeks there, at San Antonio College, you are going to a mortuary service where you will be in touch with a dead body. And if you're not comfortable with that, then it's not going to be the business for you. Was there attrition in your course? Were there people who started out thinking that they could handle it, but they really couldn't? Oh, 1000%. Oh my Lord. Yes. San Antonio College had a fairly rigorous uh, education standard where you had to make 80% on everything or you would be dropped from the program. And so there was attrition because of that. And there was attrition because people really ran screaming in some cases when they came face to face, because a lot of times you're not dealing with a dear little old man who passed away because he'd been alive too long. A lot of times, especially in a big city, you're working with car accidents, you're working with teenagers and, and people who have taken their own lives. It's, it's intense. It's intense. Can you walk me through what an average day is like for you? There's a little bit of routine. Um, usually most, what we call first calls, that is uh, the call that's made by the hospital when, or, the, or the facility or the police when somebody passes away and they need a funeral home to come take the deceased into their care. When we get those first calls, it's usually overnight. Most people we have found pass away in the middle of the night. And, uh, and so we go out on, on that first call, we take them into our care, we talk to the family if they're present about um, any kind of embalming that needs to be done or if they're going to be cremated or, or whatever. And then we go into work in the morning, we divide up the first calls among the four directors, and then we steadily set appointments, we meet with those families, when we sit down with a family to make arrangements, we go over death certificate information, we go over obituary information, you know, just kind of do sort of that quotidian type stuff. The other thing that we do is if 
a person has been embalmed overnight, the number one thing that we do first thing in the morning when, when I get there at eight and my colleagues get there at either eight or eight thirty, we check we check the bodies. We make sure that everything has kind of drained properly, that their color has gone down, that any swelling has gone down, and that uh, nothing needs to be adjusted on the person. Because sometimes when you finish embalming someone, they're super duper pink, and there might be some swelling, especially in the face. And hopefully that has gone down overnight and they look proper. It sounds like the actual embalming part of your job is very physical. Oh, yeah. <laughs> it's taxing. <laughs> And it takes a long time. So how long does it take to embalm someone and what's involved? It can take anywhere from an hour to, I've had four hours before to embalm a person, depending on, on what their condition is and what, was, what their manner of, of passing was. What we do is we make an incision. I like to make an incision um, in the inner leg to embalm through the femoral artery because that, that hides any scarring, any stitching, anything up at, the, uh, up at the neckline, because most people embalm through the carotid, the carotid artery, the right carotid artery. We, uh, we make those incisions. We do what's called raising the vessel, that is finding the artery that we need, which can be a real trial, um, because a lot of stuff inside of bodies looks like arteries, and it's not arteries. Um, an artery is going to feel kind of like penne pasta, kind of hollow on the inside when you pinch it. So we, we find that artery, we make a, a nick in the artery to place what's called the cannula in. Um, and then we begin to, we, and then we, we snip the vein as well so that we can have drainage, the accompanying vein. Um, and then we proceed to turn on our embalming machine. We uh, begin the embalming process, which is pumping formaldehyde um, of, of various strengths, uh, depending on what the person needs, into the arterial system and uh, pushing all the blood out. Are there different ways of embalming somebody based on how they died? It really comes down to what we call points, how many points uh, it's going to take to embalm them. So for example, a one point embalming case, a person who only requires a one point embalming only needs one incision, but some people have a six point embalming. Um, so that's somebody who is severely emaciated or um, has a lot of arteriosclerosis, has really brittle arteries, has a lot of blockage. Um, and you can see during the embalming process where the fluid is going and where it's not going. And so if you see, if you're embalming someone and you see that it's not going into their right leg, that means that you're going to have to open up their, their right leg also and, and embalm specifically there. There are all these different places where you can embalm. Uh, there's the, the axillary artery, which is underneath the arm. Some people have even had to go so far as to raise the dorsalis pedis, artery, which is right on top of the foot, and just specifically embalm the foot. So it, it really all depends on what the person's illness was and, uh, and where, where you need to go for it, where you see that the fluid is taking. So what happens if a body comes in and it has been in a car accident or there have been serious injuries incurred to the body? How do you get those bodies ready for a visitation? I have some experience with autopsy embalming. Uh, down in Texas, everybody gets an autopsy. And up here, not very many people do. Usually what we do is with a, with a large incision, like an autopsy incision or a surgical incision or some kind of uh, road damage, something like that, is we have a specific stitch that we use. We call it a baseball stitch. And it is, it is super tight and it's side to side and it locks um, just about every stitch and it, it completely closes that, that incision. Usually we are lucky enough that the embalming process, the arterial embalming process won't be interrupted by that sort of, by that sort of damage. 
But if it is, we will find, we will, we will keep that incision open. We will find the nearest artery and we will, will push fluid that way. Either that or there is a type of embalming called hypodermic embalming, um, where we just basically use a, a large needle and insert arterial fluid into, into those spaces. There is also what's called surface embalming which involves an embalming powder that is sometimes colloquially called birdseed. It's a a formaldehyde powder and sort of a a drying agent that we place on exposed flesh so that that can dry out and be cauterized. What are the major misconceptions or superstitions that people have about dead bodies? One misconception is that they're scary. They're not. They're dead. Another is that they uh, that they make lots of unexpected noises. They don't. You really have to be jostling someone around to get them to make sort of to get them to have that air go through their their throat and over their vocal cords. Another is that that once you're in rigor mortis, that it stays that way. Um, rigor mortis only lasts for a few hours. And then it's, uh, and then it goes, and then you're real floppy. Another is that they get cold really easily. They don't, they stay, they stay warm. Like, you know, like when you touch like a, like a puppy belly or like a kitty cat belly, that's the kind of warm that a dead body is. It's that, it's that very sort of like someone just, just woke up from a nap. That's the kind of, that's the feeling of, of a dead body. People are going to want to know. Is there poop? There is absolutely 100% poop. I am, I am the kind of mortician, and there are lots of them, who kind of talk to the bodies as they're embalming them. And I always make it clear to this person that I'm embalming. I'm like, this isn't your fault. If I, if I come out as grossed out, it's not you. It's the poop. But there is almost always poop. Yeah. Yeah. Unless, unless somebody has been in in like hospice for a few days and they haven't been eating my man there's going to be poop are there ever any surprises in your job do people ever find foreign bodies inside of a body in my career i have not opened up a person nor entered them in any way to find a foreign body Arterial embalming is the first part. The second part is cavity embalming, which is where we take sort of an independent trocar, this this large sort of harpoon thing, and uh, and we press it inside the person and we inject them with a uh, a specific super gnarly kind of fluid that just smells like hell, and uh, and it's super strong formaldehyde to firm up their insides, and that that process after we've kind of aspirated all of their insides, all of their guts and their heart and stuff, um, that's when we would probably find something, but we are only dealing with like a maybe half inch around circle. So far, the only time that I've ever really been surprised by something was when I was working down in Texas and the, uh, the fella who was brought to us, the deceased was covered in Nazi tattoos and which was a little intense. And uh, he came in with a bag. He came to us with a bag of uh, personal effects that the police had sent with him. And in, in that bag of personal effects was a screwdriver that had been literally shoved inside of him and broken off. So it came to us in two parts. And so it's nothing, by and large, we the morticians are not the ones finding things in people. We get them after the weird stuff has already been found. How do you handle bodies where maybe something from a medical procedure or from the way that the person died might show in an open casket? Cosmetics are a hell of a thing. They're awesome. Funeral cosmetics, mortuary cosmetics are awesome. We have a variety. They're, they're very specific. They're specifically formulated to be on embalmed skin, which is why if you want to view an unembalmed person, they won't be cosmetized because that stuff is just going to soak right in. But on an embalmed person, everything stays on the surface. We use a lot of wax. So there's this specific kind of hard wax that we use called wound filler. If there is, let's say that there is um, a bullet wound 
on the on the temple. Let's say that that's something that's up. What we would do is we would use that wax to smooth out that wound to cover it and and smooth it out, and then we would cosmetize over it. We would match their their skin tone or their hair color, and we would we would cosmetize over that and do do our best. We always do our best not to make people look like waxy or like my third grade piano teacher. You know, like we always try to make them look as decent as we can. There are some situations where you have to tell a family this is not the memory that you want. You if if it were just say that if it were me, I wouldn't want to remember my brother or my son or my father that way. America appears to be unique in the way that open casket services tend to be the norm rather than the exception. Why do you think that is? To me, it's specifically a Southern thing because, well, and I, and I say that because I've done most of my work here in the South. It is very much a Christian thing. I've noticed Christians really want to pass by that casket after the service is over and pat old Matilda on the chest and say, hey, you know, see you in the next one or something like that. Like, it's very important to them to see this person, this dead, this dead person. I don't know what it is about America, but I know, I know that it's always been important to us. Even when we were back in the days of like using cooling tables and stuff like that, it, it's always been important to us to, to look at dead bodies. And, um, and yeah, I mean, even, even as uh, religious traditions over here or Christian traditions over here have, have loosened up and started allowing more cremations, people, people will still have a, a full body open casket service and then the person will be cremated after instead of buried. And so it's, it's honestly like it's just in our blood. It's the weirdest thing. If someone has an open casket and then they're being cremated, do you still embalm them? No, we, we treat them exactly the same. It's probably going to be a longer cremation process, but we, we treat them exactly the same. Is it safe to be inhaling vaporized formaldehyde? Uh, we don't inhale anything uh, from the crematory, thank Christ. Oh my God. Um, and also, like, an embalmer kind of takes on the burden of knowing that they're going to die of cancer. <laughs> like, like it's a it's a super dangerous profession. We're we are um, we're exposed not just to formaldehyde in many different forms, um, but also like C diff and um, and hepatitis B and tuberculosis and AIDS, um, Creutzfeldt-Jakob syndrome. Um, did I say Jakob? Jakob. Sorry, not like Creutzfeldt-Jakob Smirnoff syndrome. And we're, we're exposed to all these different communicable diseases in addition to just, just being bombarded with formaldehyde. <laughs> we, we know, we know. But um, in the cremation process, the only thing that's dangerous is if the person uh, has a pacemaker or some kind of device that runs on a battery, some kind of implanted device that runs on a battery, or like the one time that a, a kid sneaked a lighter into his dad's pocket, his dad in the casket, um, that also isn't great. Those things, uh, all those things will explode in the, in the crematory. Um, and so those, those devices have to be removed. Um, any, anything that's going to explode, to explode, obviously, like needs, needs to be removed. But that's, that's the only uh, dangerous thing about cremation. All of those fumes are, are um, put out into the atmosphere for everyone to breathe. <laughs> You're welcome. Let's talk more about cremation. When a person is cremated, are they cremated in the same coffin that you buy at the funeral home? That depends. Oftentimes, when some if someone is embalmed and then cremated, what will what we'll use as their casket is what is um, informally known as a rental casket. It's a casket that has a, a false interior or a temporary interior that goes on with Velcro. And what we do is we place uh, basically a, a large, heavy cardboard tray in the bottom of it on rollers. The foot end of that casket opens up on a hinge, 
and they are taken out of that casket and they are placed uh, and then they're placed in the in the crematory in that sort of large heavy cardboard box. This is this is my deal. I love cremation. I'm I'm all about it. Big number one cremation stand over here. I um I I know that there are caskets that are specifically made for people to be cremated in. So it's it's essentially when people when people say just throw me in a pine box, that's that's essentially what they're talking about. Is that's that's what's available to people now. Is the the pine box is pretty much only available for cremation. If somebody feels the need to be cremated in the casket, we can do that. But by and large, what we what we do for what's called a direct cremation, that's a cremation with no services at all, um, is we place them in what's essentially a, a refrigerator box. It's a, it's a large, heavy, corrugated cardboard box that the, that the deceased goes into, and then they're placed in the, in the crematory. And that is due to Arkansas law. That's one of the laws on the books in Arkansas that, that every person who's cremated must be placed in a container, um, which is what that's called, is a cremation container. So that may vary from state to state. Generally speaking, are mourners present when someone is being cremated? No, they, they are not. There are, there are certain cultures, um, Buddhists and Hindus, we've had, we've had their families follow us out to, to the crematory and witness the cremation. And sometimes um, if a family member wants to, they can even push the, the retort button uh, to get the process started. And then, and then they leave with the knowledge that everything has been, has been taken care of. Uh, but for the most part, no, no, not at all. What temperature is it at if it only takes an hour? Oh, it's blasting. Um, I don't have those numbers right now. Um, but yeah, it's super duper hot. And it's not it's not flames that are like shooting out into the the retort. It is the the retort itself being heated from the outside and it's the heat that cremates them, not the flames. So this is probably a question that you get a lot. When you say that's my Aunt Matilda in the urn, is that really my Aunt Matilda in the urn? The, the best way that we have found to, um, to alleviate that question is we have, we have forms that people sign because, because the, the funeral home that I work for is, co- is corporately owned. We have got paperwork for every occasion. And one of the things that we do is we either have a, um, a family member do a, an in-person identification viewing to make sure that the person that we are cremating is their Aunt Matilda, or they give us a um, they give us permission to use a recent photograph of their Aunt Matilda for us to for us to take care of it. I know that on my end, although we use a um, an outside crematory, what we do as funeral directors is we cart the bodies out to the the crematory we have that photograph with us we confirm that it's your aunt matilda the crematory staff confirms it's their aunt matilda and then and then we go on from there so yeah it really is it's her so how long do you have to wait for the ashes to cool down so you can put them in an urn a while um after after the person is um is cremated, reduced, reduced to ash. Um, they are then. This is this is the word. They are then pulverized, and that's so. Once they've once they've been sort of rendered to a state where they can be, they are then pulverized. So it sounds like in cremation, even though the body is completely consumed by heat, there are still maybe bone fragments, teeth things like that that are left behind? Absolutely. And so that's that's where the pulverization process comes in, is to reduce them to, to fine ash. Um, because what we don't want is to re- like release your Aunt Matilda to you, and you, you look in the bag, and there's like an ankle bone up in there. Like, we don't, we don't want that to be a part of this. What happens when someone arrives and they're a child or a baby. Yeah, it's rough. Uh, it's a it's a toughie. Whew. 
those are those are really really hard it depends on the age of of the baby a lot of what we get around here because we have a uh we have a hospital we have kind of a a maternity hospital right nearby is we get a lot of what's called fetal demise that's miscarriages um and uh and babies who weren't brought to term or who were stillborn um in those in a lot of those cases they are they are so small and uh and they they just have little fingers and, and whatever they're not really recognizable as people most of the time the families want to cremate with them um when it comes to babies and children um we are we are very delicate with those families. There are no, th this, is, this is standard across every funeral home that I've ever worked in, corporate or family owned. Uh, there are no charges for services for families who have lost children or, or babies. Um, and so what we do is we procure the casket for them. We um, make sure that they have a space out in the cemetery and, uh, and oftentimes we will we will encourage the family to um, perform the service themselves. That is, speak on behalf of their on their of their children and uh, and speak about their grief. Every workplace has their inside jokes or their funny approach to the job that they do. What's it like where you work? We have fun. We we have. Um, Something that something that we do a lot is when we get when we get a first call and we're you know or we're we're talking about you know the first calls that we got in the morning. Someone will one of my coworkers will ask, well, what happened to them? And one of us will say, well, they died. <laughs> um, um, you know, it's another part of the job is making um, slideshows for the visitation and things like that with photographs that people brought in. A lot of those photos are from like the 60s and 70s when people had buck wild hair. And so those are always a delight. A lot of times what we try to do is make the families laugh while we're in arrangements with them so that, so that we can kind of reassure them that it doesn't have to be the biggest bummer on earth that they're doing this. Um, and so oftentimes families will ask um, like, what sort of clothes do we need to bring in for our grandma? They, they often ask, do we need to bring underwear? And we will, something that we all say to them is, well, you know, I know that you don't want her meeting Jesus without her panties on. And so <laughs> that usually goes over well, but that, that so far that hasn't really been <laughs> tough. It is, it is very site specific. It's very culturally specific. It's it's not a lot of super dark jokes back there in the in the bullpen with the directors. Like you would think that we have a lot of like morbid humor. There isn't a lot of that because I don't know, man. Like we get it. <laughs> this is this is kind of our day to day. It's not a novelty for us, and so isn't a whole lot of humor and something, I don't know, like something that we definitely don't do. And it's a misconception um, that we do do it is we don't make fun of people while we're dressing them or embalming them or anything like that. That's not, that's not on our agenda. Have you ever had any very strange requests? One young man who, who died of what I would consider a premature death from alcoholism and his mom wanted me to bury him with a bottle of crown Royal and out at the cemetery, so we so we tucked this bottle of Crown Royal in his arms, and you know he looked very peaceful with it. Like, and they said that's him, you know. And uh, we got out to the cemetery. The family requested that we open the casket back up. They proceeded to drink that entire bottle of Crown Royal out there at the cemetery. God bless. <laughs> yeah, there was this young man who was a, a like a dirt bike enthusiast, and he ended up dying of leukemia of all things, but he was this like stunt dirt bike, like a master, just this, this is whiz kid on his dirt bike. 
And um, it wasn't out at the cemetery, but it was afterward. What they wanted to do was have a balloon release, a, a balloon release at the uh, at the skate park where all the dirt bikers were like just going around and like doing crazy tricks on the on the the ramps and stuff. And that was pretty cool. That was really cool. So what makes you passionate about your job? All kinds of things. I'm a person with a really sunny disposition and I, uh, I have a lot of, I've spent so much of my life like being really angry and really kind of downtrodden. And now I have a lot of like love to give. And so for me, it's a great way to kind of release to have sort of a a love release valve I get I get close with families I develop relationships with families so that they know that they are not an inconvenience to me a lot of families uh, want to apologize for things or they want to make requests that they think are weird but aren't weird that they're just really normal Um, and I don't I want them I want them to feel comfortable I don't know if it's a Southern thing or just a a basic human thing, but a lot of people feel uncomfortable asking for help when they need help. And I want them, I want to be like the first person to tell them that it's okay to ask for help for anything. Um, I'm, I'm not in the business of saying no to people. Like, yeah, people, people will say like, this sounds like a weird request, but can we like play ACDC at dad's, you know, visitation? I'm like, yes, of course, dude. (laughs) Like they're so used to one kind of funeral. And that is the funeral where everything is super sad and everything revolves around Jesus. And that the, that the deceased is just kind of window dressing. Um, And so I like to encourage them to really, to really go all out. Um, that's, that's one of the reasons that I'm passionate about it. Um, I'm passionate about changing a, a stagnant industry. Um, being, being a young queer person working, especially in Arkansas, I really like to defy people's expectations of what a funeral director can be. Let's talk about your industry when you mentioned that your class was primarily women, I was surprised because the impression is that being a mortician or being a funeral director is a very male-dominated profession. It really is. It has it has been on the turn for a little over ten years now, um, but the the face of the funeral industry is obsequious white men (laughs) just kind of money grubbing um dudes in suit coats and uh and so what we're seeing now is a lot more women who are a lot more women in the industry who are more focused on personalization and more focused on compassion and uh and more interested in taking taking care of like the gestalt of a family's needs instead of just having them come in, itemize their charges and boot them out. You know, it's, it's a lot more focused on, on what, what the families want. And I can guarantee you that's a direct result of, of women making a a sea change in the industry. So what do you do in situations where you have to meet with a family and you can tell that they absolutely are dreading meeting you? One of the things that I don't like to say is I'm sorry for your loss because that's such a pat, like bummer thing to say, um, really insincere. And, uh, and so usually what I like to start with is how are you feeling and why don't you tell me about your mom or your, your brother or whoever it is that you've lost. I would tell them that they are, I would tell them that they have a lot of, a lot of power and bravery going through, uh, going through this process because it's not easy and it would be a lot easier to just stay in bed and not, not worry about it. So I would tell them that I'm, I'm really, I'm really proud of them and that, uh, that it's okay to talk about how they're feeling and it's okay to cry. So you've been doing your job for a while. There must be very few surprises left for you. 
That's exactly right. And what I always, always tell people who try to kind of with sometimes with families, they want to take they want to keep a hold of a lot of control, even though they don't know what they're doing. And so what I always tell them is I went to school for this. I know I know what I'm doing. And the fact that I know what I'm doing means that it's okay for you not to know what you're doing. It's fine. <laughs> um, and so, yeah, there, there aren't very many surprises at this point. And I know, and, and the thing is, is that in, in funeral years, I'm still pretty green. I mean, I work with people who have had, you know, 20 or 30 years in the industry and it can kind of jade you a little bit. It can make you uh, cynical um, and distrusting and things like that because, you know, not every family makes good on paying for their stuff or families will often say one thing and then want to do another. And it's, it's all just a matter of how you see your position in their lives. Because to me, I'm in a, I'm in a service position. I'm, I'm not in a, in a dominating position with them. And I work, I, I've worked with people in the past who, who have said, you know, I'm, I'm in charge of them and they're going to do what I say. So it, it all depends on, you know, your, your outlook on the job. Do you ever have to mediate arguments between family members? Yes, absolutely. Funerals and weddings bring out either the best or the worst in the families. <laughs> We've had families come to blows, come to, to literal physical blows. And I know that's not just an Arkansas thing, but it's so easy to say that's just an Arkansas thing. Um, a lot of times there will be um, money at stake that families will be arguing over, or there will be a remarriage that that has caused a lot of contention. You know, like like grandpa married this 30-year-old right before he died. And, you know, and so there's there's a lot of stuff like that. And sometimes, sometimes there are people who are never going to be pleased because their mom is dead. Their mom is dead. And like, there's nothing that anyone can do about it. And that's, it's, it's heartbreaking because there's, there's nothing that you can say that will make them feel like, like there's ever going to be an end to their grief. <laughs> You know, she can, you're, you know, that mom can look as, as beautiful as she did in her wedding photo. She can be perfectly, impeccably dressed, cosmetized in a beautiful casket. And it doesn't matter because she died. So like, there's, there's just the one thing that we can't give people and that's their loved one back. So yeah, um, a lot of times families will get argumentative, they'll, they'll get argumentative and pissy with each other. And with, and with me, because they're in an impossible position. You've dealt with hundreds of bereaved families. So what do you think people get wrong when they approach bereaved families or they go to talk to bereaved families? Oh, man, don't ever say everything happens for a reason, please. I'm like, I'm begging. I'm begging, please don't say that. That is such a bummer, especially when someone's lost a kiddo. Um a lot of people's go-to is going to be um, kind of religion-based or, uh, or Christianity-based. Uh, God doesn't give you more than you can handle or, um, you know, God only takes the best, et cetera, et cetera. Um, oh, don't, please. That's so rough. And especially um, if you're talking to a kiddo, um, they remember the stuff that you say and they, and, and it, it can make a really bad impact on them. Like if you say grandma, grandma got sick and she died, um, that kid, the next time they get a cold is that they're going to think that it's their turn. Now they're, they're going to go be with grandma. Um, when I was in mortuary school, the, uh, the chair of our mortuary science department, who is, who was one of my mentors and one of my heroes, uh, Felix Gonzalez, Dr. Felix Gonzalez, um, what he said to us was, what you say to people is, I'm sorry. And if you feel like you need to say more, you say, I'm so sorry. And that's really kind of it. The other thing that you can always, always say is, tell me about her or tell me about him. Tell me about that person. Tell me about them. You know, share, share some memories with me. It's not a burden. 
There's a weird impression that that's taboo in our society, though, that you shouldn't ask about the deceased. Exactly. Um, especially if the person was a bastard. If the person, if the person who died was, you know, a real jerk and uh, or there was an estrangement situation or something like that, it's still OK to ask somebody to talk about them. And it's OK to hear that they were a jerk. People don't become saints just because they die. Um, I, I don't think that there's anything wrong with speaking ill of the dead, to be frank with you. There's a natural tendency to not speak ill of the dead, even if a person was an absolutely terrible human being. What's that all about? It's completely bizarre. And it is, it is not uncommon to see in families where um, a child who maybe, um, maybe was abused or something like that, they come, to, they, they come into arrangements and they say, no, I want a bronze casket for my daddy. I want the best of everything, you know, and, and they'll talk about how he treated them like garbage. But, you know, he's dead now and we can't, you know, we have to give him the best. No, you don't, my dude. It's fine. What's your ideal funeral? What's your ideal way to be celebrated? Oh, man. Oh, geez. I know that I would, I'm, I'm going to be cremated just like every single other person that I know. Um, I would want to be cremated. I would want a, um, a memorial service out in, um, out in a park, I think, uh, with just loads of other people around having a good time. Um, no urn or anything like that. Just people kind of hanging out and having a picnic and talking about me. That would be that would be the ideal. Um, I'd want to be kind of scattered. I, I like the idea of scattering. Um, I know that there are people who are really passionate about um, memorializing people who have been cremated, but I'm a big proponent of scattering so that they can go everywhere. They can go wherever they want. Um, and that's that's what I'd want to do. It would be very low key. I read about this recently that because it was happening in a rogue situation so often, if you want to scatter someone's ashes at Disney World, there's a hotline to call. I believe that there is. I have not had to call it yet. Unfortunately, I can't wait for the first time that I get to call the Disney cremation hotline. Uh, that would be badass. I know that people um, will go on cruise ships and, and surreptitiously scatter off the sides of cruise ships, which is pretty chill. Is there any health risk that cremains pose to the average person? No, um, it, it's kind of like it's kind of like cooking food that you're worried might be a little past its past its uh, expiration date. If you if you cook it hot enough, everything just kind of dissipates. Um, that's that's kind of what it's like. There is there are no um, diseases or or um, anything that we know of that survive cremation. How has your job changed the way that you view life and death? It's made me more sort of death aware. When I first entered the industry, as in when I first started working, working full time for the funeral home that I work for right now, which is where most of my, um, most of my experience has been, I really, I really thought that funerals, the funeral ceremony was unnecessary. Um, I, didn't, I didn't see the purpose of getting everybody together and talking about the person who passed away because I, when I first started, I thought when I die, I just wanna be forgotten. I just don't wanna leave any kind of footprint at all. I don't wanna exist in anyone's memory. Um, I don't, I don't think that it's necessary. As I've gone along and I've met with different types of families and I've, I've both delivered myself as a celebrant or witnessed all these different kinds of, of ceremonies, all these different kinds of funerals um, for people of, of all ages from, you know, stillborn all the way up to people who are like 107. I know that it is necessary and you can't, you can't speed up the grieving process. You can't, you can't be forgotten. You can't be forgotten and you won't be because for, for good or for ill, you've, you've touched everybody's life that you've come in contact with. And so it's made me a lot more aware of how I interact with everybody 
everybody, the checkout person at Walmart, like whatever, I, it, it has made me very aware of how I want to be remembered since it's inevitable. What's the best eulogy you've ever seen? Oh, geez. I've heard some really, really good ones. Um, here's, here's what I'll say. I, I will say that the most touching eulogy I ever heard was a woman who got up at her, at her mama's funeral and she was drunk as a skunk and she got up there to the podium and she sang the first verse and chorus of me without you. Um, it's, I think, I think it's like Patsy Cline or one of them. And, um, and it's just this heartbreaking song about losing someone. And she, she sang that and she said, I love you mama. And then she sat back down and that was the end of the service. It was, it was so powerful, man. Have you ever witnessed a eulogy where you said, Hey, I've seen a lot of these, but that's a new one on me. There was this one where the guy who passed away, this is one of my favorite funerals of all times. It's one of my favorite families I've ever worked with. I adored them from the second they walked in. Not only had we epoxied the Ford logo to his casket, the family consisted of his kiddos um, and his ex-wife. And uh, he, she was his ex-wife. But you see this a lot where people will get divorced but stay best friends because they weren't meant to be married, but they were meant to be like together. And, uh, and this, this ex-wife had written like, we'll miss you on squares of toilet paper and had rolled it up and they unrolled that toilet paper out of the cemetery. And it was marvelous. It was absolutely marvelous. I loved it. Oh my God, that was super, I had never seen such a thing in my entire life. It was really cool. Tell me about the best part of your job and the worst part of your job. The best part of my job, I think, is meeting with families and getting to know their specific situation, what their loved one was like, um, what those relationships were like. That's, I I just can't tell you how much I love it. I, I feel like I'm shining. If, if I haven't met with a family in like a week or two, if it's been really slow, I start to feel like genuinely depressed because I feel like that connection is fading. Um, so that's my favorite part of my job is, uh, is making arrangements and, and making them sort of come, come to fruition. Uh, least favorite part of my job is probably going to a Pentecostal church. <laughs> I don't know, man. I, uh, I don't, I don't really dig a lot of, uh, a lot of speaking in tongues and a lot of falling out and rolling around on the ground. Uh, that, that stuff kind of bums me out. It, if, if it satisfies the, the families for what they need, then, you know, friggin' Godspeed. The worst part about my job is probably meeting with um, families of people who have taken their own lives. I know that um, for me personally, and this is, this is not too personal for me because I talk about it all the time. Um, I've made several attempts on my own life and, uh, because I didn't think um, that my family would care. Um, even though I have a very loving family, uh, my mental illness told me differently. And, um, and so having to meet with these families and, uh, and having to, to watch them wonder what, what this person really thought of them, that, that's probably the worst, the worst part, is to, uh, to see them kind of struggle with that and to, uh, to, hear, to hear that anger at, at this, those are the only families uh, that I meet with besides uh, families who have experienced abuse. Those are the only families that get really angry at their loved one. Are you open about what you do for a living when you meet new people? I don't try to. It's not something that I delight in. I have, it's, it's not, it's not like I'm out there trying to freak the mundanes. Like I, I really, um, I am very matter of fact about it. And, uh, and I, I like to let them let them know if they start asking me kind of prurient questions or gross questions or something that they're they're more than welcome to ask me anything. But for me, because I do this every day, it's going to be way more interesting to me to talk about the fact that our receptionist didn't know what Panda Express was until last year. And so like that's that's what I'm going to want to talk about and not sort of the the gross, the super gross removals and the maggots and the decomposition and, and you know, the people who died on the toilet and that kind of stuff. Like that's not as interesting to me because it's 
I think that people are expecting it to be titillating, but really it's just sad. It's just a real bummer. Usually if, if someone's decomposing, it means that no one cared about them enough to check on them for a week and a half. And so I think that once those ramifications kind of set in, one of the, it, it, it kind of changes the tone of the conversation. Are there people in your life that do not ever want to hear about anything regarding your job? My mother. <laughs> I, I, live, I live with my folks and, uh, and my mom, my, my mom has, has laid very sensible boundaries about what I can and can't talk about while she's around. Meanwhile, dad, dad wants to hear if dad wants to hear the slightest thing. My dad wants to hear about absolutely everything. He's like, he just, he will literally ask me, was it gross? Yeah. Yeah, bro. It was gross. Like, yeah, fine. (laughs) What's a question that you get asked about your job all the time that people think is really weird, but you don't think is weird at all? Do you have to be embalmed? So that's, so that's like the most common question that I get asked. And the other, uh, the other questions are about like green burials and stuff like that, that I'll have information on. Um, Probably the, the, question that most people consider weird that I don't consider weird anymore is um is about kids and babies about what do you do what do you do when a baby comes in we have a funeral for them dude like what do you what do you think we do like I, I get why you're asking but damn what have you learned about the grieving process from your job that you wish other people would know I would want people to know that it's going to be a lot harder. It's going to take a lot longer if you don't face it now. That if you don't do the work that hurts while it's still hurting, it's going to seep out in a lot of really ugly ways later on down the line. It, uh, that, you, that you have to feel that if, if you are sad, that your loved one has died and not everybody is, you know, some people they've, they've really made peace with it. They're in a good spot about it. You know, the person was sick for a long time, whatever. But if you're, if you're bummed and you're hurting and you don't know how you're going to go on without this person, you've got to explore that now. And you, you can't, you can't just swallow it down and also talk to a therapist. Damn. Talk to a therapist. That's what a therapist is for. You need you need a uh, an objective third party to spill your guts to. That's what I would say. What's the hardest part of your job? Something I will say is that if you're wondering why people go to work for corporate funeral homes as opposed to family-owned funeral homes, One of the reasons is that um, we as funeral directors get paid whether our families pay us or not. That's been one of the hardest parts of the job for me is is asking about money. The money stuff is really rough because you're already fighting against the idea that you're a money grubber and that you are that you are going to take them for a ride, which is never my intention. We we are portrayed in the media as money grubbers and necrophiles. And that's it. I have, I have never seen even like even on something like Six Feet Under like even even that show the corporation is the villain and the corporation that I work for is super villainous that's absolutely true they are they are a, a really it's very difficult to reconcile like my politics with the with the corporation that I work for but also family funeral homes take people for rides as well. It's a pretty delicate thing. I'm hoping, I'm hoping that what happens is that we start going to things like, um, like all cremation and composting and stuff like that. A lot less foofara, a lot less rigmarole, and a lot more compassion and human-based services. People usually get their impression of funerals from movies, TV, and other funerals that they've attended. Do you think because of that, people don't actually know what they want when they walk in the door? Absolutely. Um, I think that's absolutely true. And um, it, it bugs me because people, people will come in and it's already a high emotion situation. And then they're asked to make a bunch of choices. Um, and they, they have no idea. They have, for one thing, when we ask a family whether we have permission to embalm their loved one, it 
it bums me out that they don't know what that entails. That it is that it's pretty brutal. It's gross, and uh, and it is it is in service of seeing someone for maybe a few hours, like maximum. Um, it's it's in service of holding on to something that they may not necessarily need to hold on to. Um, that it might be healthier if they didn't hold on to it. Um, and so, but they, they naturally answer yes, because they think that that is the way that it needs to be done. And so, yeah, I think that if, I think that if the funeral industry were more transparent about its, about its practices and, uh, and the way that, the way that prices are set, the way that, um, embalming is done, what a funeral director's job is, what you can, you know, like what you can ask of a funeral director, you know, I think, and I think that if we were, I think that if we as a society were way more open, were more like death aware and sort of lived, lived for more, more conscious of our own mortality, which is inevitable. Um, I think that, I think that a lot of these problems would be solved and a lot of that, con- that confusion would be cleared up which would make everybody, it would certainly make my job easier and it would make everybody a lot more chill. Is there ever a request that someone would make that you would have to turn down? Uh, drugs. Um, I know that uh, I, I did have a family once who wanted to put an eight ball in their uncle's pocket. Um, and, I said, and I said, guys, no, you can't. <laughs> like, listen, like, you know, like, this is not a personal judgment, but nah. No, you you simply cannot. Um, I think I think that if somebody wanted to do something that would, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Degrade the body in some way, something that would desecrate the body, and more than it's already been desecrated by embalming. I think that if they if they wanted to like set somebody on fire or something like that, I couldn't be down for that. I don't think that that would be legal. Um, but. Other, honest to God, other than that, like the the example that I always give to people when I'm trying to to stress to them how far their imagination can go, I always tell them like, if you want a horse in the chapel, I'm gonna get you a horse. Like I don't care. It it is it is whatever you want. It is whatever you want, like within reason. And to me, reason stops at an eight ball. So, so yeah. Um, but I, but also I work with people. Um, I've, I've had coworkers in the past who, you know, they wanted their dad to be buried wearing like devil horns. And I've worked with evangelicals who are just like, I, I can't, I don't feel comfortable with that. And they will say no to the family. But the thing is, is that the family's going to do it anyway. So you may as well just say yes to them. <laughs> Have you ever buried anyone with a knife or a gun before? I haven't been asked. I really, I really don't. I, a knife, I don't think I'd be too worried about. I think I'd bury people with pocket knives and things like that. But like a like a big ass machete or something, I haven't been asked. Um, I I can't wait. That would be rad. Um, but a gun, man, like a I don't know. It better it better not be loaded because those things can just go off. So, so yeah, like I I think that a gun would be different circumstances, you know, like if, like if, if in like 25 or 30 years when that person's vault degrades and their casket degrades and they're, they're like, they're in the ground with a gun. Like, I don't know, man. Erin, thank you so much for being here to talk about your incredibly fascinating job. If you want to follow Erin on Twitter, they're at at Jortician, J-O-R-T-I-C-I-A-N. Thank you for listening to On Grief, a podcast about death. If you'd like to contribute to our Patreon, it's patreon.com forward slash ongriefpod. You can find us on the web at ongrief.fireside.fm. You can find us on social media at at ongriefpod on Instagram or on Facebook and on grief podcast on Twitter next week. Ritual is a really um, a, a tricky one. I think that we tend to eschew rituals. We're like, ah, who wants rituals, right? We're free of ritual, but ritual is actually a kind of freedom in itself. And it's, it's a, 
it's a garment. I mean, it's one of the reasons why I call the book Death's Summer Coat is this concept of it's a ritual is something you put on as you're processing through things. And we know that, um, you know, we, we feel differently when we are wearing, when we are performing, right? And in a way, um, I think rituals are a way of engaging with the process of death and dying in a more intimate fashion than we typically do. I think it's something we tend to shy away from. Um, that's not surprising, but to engage with it, uh, without any kind of, you know, with, without a ritual, I think you feel like you're in the woods. And I tell the story of a friend of mine who kindly let me reproduce it for the book where, because her father, um, was not religious, they at first had planned no rituals at all post his death. And they all just felt lost. She said it was just like wandering around in the woods. Like they just, I, I had no place to put my grief. Brandy Scalace on The History of Grief. 